There are many ways people listen to vision, including through a PC at work. When you fire up your computer at work, go to vision.org.au slash listen and click the Vision or V180 Listen Live buttons. You can also catch the latest Vision National News Bulletin and enjoy a growing range of on-demand podcasts from the same page all while you work. However, and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Senator Bob Day, welcome along to 2020. Good morning. Senator Day, let me just ask you, uh, first of all, as we get underway, the campaign has been unfolding. You've been watching the major parties. You've been watching the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, the opposition leader, Bill Shorten. How do you think things are progressing so far two weeks into the campaign? Well, I don't consider myself a commentator so much, but obviously we can't help but note, you know, observe how the major parties are travelling. Um, Labor is, and uh, the opposition leader are proving to be a lot more competitive than what uh, the coalition expected uh, last September when they replaced um, uh, Tony Abbott um, and um, put in Malcolm Turnbull. But... Um, Look, they'll do what they're, what they're doing, trying to outspend each other all the time, racking up more debt, um, $500 billion now, I think our debt level is, and, and that's costing a billion dollars a month in interest. And I think they're even joking about um, adding it to the spend-a-thon and all this sort of thing. But, look, we at Family First, we're just getting on with our focus on um, family business and, and family farms and, and every family a job and a house. We think that that is where... Um, Australian society is at is at that very very um, local and micro level, and if families can be strong, we have some strong values, then that will lead to a strong Australia. Interestingly, when, when we talk about family first, the name of your political party, family first, and of course uh, that is what you're all about, putting the family first. Does that throw a contrast, though, to what you're seeing in the major parties, the Liberal National Coalition, uh, the Labor and the Greens parties? Do you feel as though they don't put family first? Oh, there's no doubt about that. They believe that the government is the uh, font and centre of all wisdom and that the everything centres around the government, um, whereas um, we think that families... Um, um, are the, the centre of society and the essential building blocks of society. And that's why we call ourselves family first and family businesses, small business in particular. We're very, very strong in supporting policies towards that supports and uh, family businesses and lowers the cost of doing business and, um, you know, with all sorts of things in there like power prices and water prices and so on. Family farms are another core um, constituency of ours. There's a lot of family farms that are struggling and um, every family a job and a house. So um, I often say I'd, we'd, we'd rather have families and no government than, than gov- government and no families. We think that that's, um, that's how society would better function. Senator, you mentioned the idea of uh, nobody expected the two major parties to be so close as they are now. There's been a number of opinion polls that have been published and showing that the gap 
has uh, has closed and some polls put Labor ahead of the coalition. Uh, is that saying something to the electorate, given that when Malcolm Turnbull uh, took over as leader of the coalition, that uh, his popularity skyrocketed and uh, and that's come into now a, a steep decline. Is, is that saying something about the uh, the electorate? Well, we know how fickle uh, polling can be. And the basis of um, uh, Mr Turnbull ascending um, and replacing uh, Mr Abbott was based on, I think he said, 20 or 30 consecutive polls. So... But we've known for many, many decades that polling people and just asking them that simple question, if an election were held today, who would you vote for? It is such a shallow um, uh, approach and the electorate is so fickle that you can go up and you can come down and that's exactly what's happened. And um, the electorate um, blows hot and cold and that's no basis for uh, for running a government um, or running a... Um, a strategy based on polling. There's those simple, uh, those simple polls, those simple results, and you say they're not reliable. There are other questions that get asked in polls, though, aren't there? And uh, just noting of one of the recent polls uh, where voters were asked to consider uh, the likability of those leaders, and Malcolm Turnbull considered to be a little more arrogant than Bill Shorten. Is arrogance an issue here? Because it does seem to me that Australian voters don't like arrogant politicians. Uh, When people start talking about the arrogance level of leaders, is that significant, do you think? I don't think so. Um, A good example of that was uh, back in 1993, um, uh, Paul Keating won the uh, what was considered the unlosable election by the coalition under John Hewson. Um, and people didn't particularly like Mr Keating. They thought he was arrogant and a whole lot of other adjectives as well, and yet he still won the election because, as some wag once said, it's the economy, stupid, and it, um, we don't care. I think the public, the electorate, doesn't care that much how what their personality type is if they're competent. You know, that we want people who are competent. You know, it's nice to have a mechanic fix your car who's a nice person and very polite. But, you know, at the end of the day, you'd rather have someone who was blunt and abrupt, but were very competent. And I think the number one criteria, the number one factor that people look for is competence. And if you've got um, two leaders who are competent, then obviously people then will lean towards the person who is more likable. Now, at the moment, I'm not sure who's um, more likable or or less unlikable, um, but it's all about competency, and I think that's where they're coming unstuck. That's where both the major parties are coming unstuck, that they are both just spending money. um, They're not addressing the real issues. Um, At the moment, every year, the government spends $430 billion. I'll say that again. $430 billion is the uh, annual budget, and yet they only receive $390 billion. That's a $40 billion shortfall. So what do they do? They just keep racking up more and more debt. Now, as we all know, and it doesn't matter whether you're a family or a business or a farm or a government, um, you can't spend more than you earn. So therefore, the only solution when you get in a situation like this is you have to shrink the viability. You have to reduce your spending to match your income. They have to reduce their spending 
from 430 billion back to 390 billion and then they can grow the pie and you know jobs and growth and all those other things but whilst they keep racking up more and more debt and adding that 40 billion to the debt every year that's costing a billion dollars a month in interest which is 37 million dollars a day now, who's going to pay that? Um, the Treasury forecast has said that they don't see it coming into balance any time in the foreseeable future. In other words, we will be handing all that debt to our children, and it's already hard enough for them to you know, get a start in life and try and buy a house. And not only that, they're going to have to pay back our, um, our, our debt as well. Are you saying that both sides of the major parties are not addressing the debt? They don't want to talk about it. I mean, it's only just over a year we were talking about a budget emergency and that was the platform on which the coalition endeavoured to rein in some of the spending because of what they called that budget emergency. Nobody's talking about that now. The debt is continuing to spiral out of control uh, is there, in any sense, uh, a budget emergency that ought to be discussed at this time by the major parties, but nobody would want to talk about that during an election campaign? Of course, that's, that's exactly right. It, it is a budget emergency. You can't keep going spending $430 billion and only uh, receiving $390 billion. And for nine consecutive years now, since Peter Costello was uh, Treasurer, every year since then... Um, both the major parties have been p- pursuing policies which are not based on economic reality. And the economic reality is you can't spend more than you earn. Now, I'm sure Australians, I know they don't like to talk about the um, the major parties don't like to talk about it, but I'm sure Australians would rather be hurt by the truth than be comforted with a lie. And the truth is that you know economic reality is what it is and they won't deal with it because they think they'll lose votes and nothing else matters. My observation in the last couple of years being in politics is that it's not about facts or figures or logic or reason or anything like that. The only thing that matters is how do I get into office if I'm in opposition or if I'm in government, how do I stay in? And you say and do whatever it takes to get into office or to stay in office. And I think that is where, and people are realising that. That's why at the last election, 25% of the population did not vote for the major parties. Three million people voted for minor parties and independents like Family First. And what happened? The major parties didn't like it. So then they teamed up and changed the Senate voting laws to, to get rid of minor parties and independents uh, like Family First so that um, if more and more people start voting for minor parties, it doesn't matter what the major party vote drops to. Um, it's at the moment it's at 75, or at the last election it was 75%. It could drop to 70%, even 60%. The major parties could get 60% of the vote and yet want 100% of the seats. Now, you know, how democratic is that? That's, that's the sort of thing they do in third world countries, not in Australia.
Okay, the dust is settling on the High Court challenge and that challenge was defeated in the High Court. You were leading that challenge and you had some high expectation that somehow or other there would be some sort of rescue that would come for that three million disaffected voters. Uh, You as being one who will be affected by the changes to the voting laws in the Senate, how are you seeing your chances of re-election now and even not just yourself but uh, election of other family first senators how how are your chances well it's as you know this is a double dissolution election which is very rare we only get double dissolution elections about once every 30 years so we may get a temporary reprieve because in a double dissolution election all senators are up for re-election which means you only need half the number or half the percentage of votes uh, to be elected so In a double dissolution election um, where 12 senators per state are elected, we need a vote of of about 7%. Now, in a normal half-Senate election, um, you need over 14%, which is just about... which is impossible for a minor party or independent. But this election, to get to 7%, is definitely uh, achievable. I got about 4% at uh, last time um, with, without having any incumbency. Um, but with the, um, uh, with the benefit of, of being there for the last two years, there's um, um, every chance that I could probably get an extra 1% or 2%. Our two state uh, MPs from Family First get around about 5% because they've been there for a few years. So I, I think my prospects of being re-elected on this occasion are good. But that's only for the for three years, and then after that, the hurdle then is fourteen percent, which um, is nigh on impossible. Visions twenty twenty with Neil Johnson: a biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Talking through issues today with political parties where there is a Christian foundation in place, talking with Senator Bob Day from Family First. Senator Day, when it comes to these economic issues, uh, one of the major controversies has been over the superannuation cap. Does Family First have a perspective on that? Uh, yes, it does. Um Look, many, many years ago, the, the government said to people, look, we can't sustain this, um, this ever-rising pension. Uh, people are living much longer. When pensions were first introduced, the average um, lifespan of a person was about 66. So they retired at 65, lived for one year on the pension. We're talking now an extra 20, 30 years, and it's become unsustainable. So the government said, look, we want you to start looking after yourself into retirement and here are a whole lot of uh, things that we to encourage you to put your money into superannuation. The government now is so desperate for more revenue because, it, like I said earlier, it doesn't want to cut its spending. So it's now looking for tax grabs at every opportunity. So it's starting to raid people's superannuation uh, accounts, and we do not uh, support that uh, move at all. We think that's that's certainly unethical because they. In, in good faith, people put money into superannuation um, and the rules back then were what they were and to change them now is just simply is some, simply not on. Is there a sense in which when you see this sort of thing happening, you're looking at uh, intrusion by government into uh, those sort of personal holdings that you hope in a free society are in some ways sacrosanct? Yes, look, it goes back to the very values. You know, in a, 
the values are the foundation of a nation. You know, we, we family first believes in the importance of values. Values like telling the truth, you know, living within your means, hard work, you know, respect, courtesy, compassion, generosity. But when we see cronyism and wastefulness and backstabbing and price gouging by government agencies and, you know, into super and water prices and power prices and so on, and, and politicians spending millions of dollars on themselves while, while pensioners can't afford to heat or cool their homes. We know that there is a lack of values and a failure of leadership. We've been talking economic issues. Let's move into some of those very significant ethical, social, moral issues that are facing the nation and some of these issues which are continuing on. There is a campaign during the election. There's been an attempt to separate uh, those issues of marriage and the Safe Schools Coalition, those sorts of things, from the campaign, although there's a lot of activity that seems to be going on behind the scenes. These are very much a part of this campaign, are they not? They certainly are. Um, the the same-sex marriage um, plebiscite, or, or lack of, in fact, um, in my opinion, I I can't see there being a plebiscite, regardless who wins the election. I I think they'll say it's all too hard and it's too divisive, and it'll just uh, you know give rise to all sorts of hate speech and all this sort of thing. And I think they'll just say, well, let's just get on with it. So I wouldn't be. Uh, supporting either of the major parties and taking them at at their word on that one. And Family First's position is very, very clear on the the question of same-sex marriage, and that is that until, until we know what the impacts will be on the rights of children and the rights of parents and um, what the impact on freedom of speech and freedom of conscience will be, we, that we should, there should not be any changes to the Marriage Act until we know that. And also, will the question, will same-sex marriage um, mean same-sex education? Um, these are the questions that we need to know before any change to the Marriage Act uh, uh, has been made. So you don't believe that the coalition, if Malcolm Turnbull is re-elected as Prime Minister and has his own mandate, that that has any chance of actually getting up? There might not be a plebiscite at all. There might not be a plebiscite at all. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Now, this brings into focus the importance of having a crossbench that will stand up to government. And, uh, and so far as Family First goes, I, I suspect that, uh, that you'd be saying, well, Family First ought to be there on the crossbench. Uh, it's not going to be unless people actually put a one in the box for the Senate voting. Uh, how do people make the, the best of the effort to actually uh, vote for Family First? Well, in the Senate is to vote one family first. In the Senate is absolutely crucial. It's um, people. There's been a lot of criticism of the crossbench. Certainly, I think unfair criticism. It was the crossbench that uh, enabled the government to get all its key election policies through from the last election, um, the, the, abolishing the mining tax, um, abolishing the carbon tax, um, stopping the boats, border protection. Labor and the Greens opposed all those, and the coalition needed the crossbench to support each of those uh, policy measures which it took to the last election. And the crossbench supported the government in all those things. And, you know, I always say in any situation, um, is, this, uh, is this adding value or is it adding cost? Does the crossbench add value to the parliament or does it add cost? And I would argue that the, uh, the crossbench uh, adds great value. Another very, very recent example of that 
was um, with respect to independent truck drivers and owner drivers, family owned trucking firms who um, looked like being run off the road, as it were, um, because of this um, uh, decision by a, 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 a tribunal which would have forced them all to go and work for big companies. It would have ruined thousands and thousands of small family-owned trucking firms, and it was the crossbench who banded together and went to the government and said, no, this needs to be fixed now. The government was saying, oh, look, if we're re-elected, we'll have a look at it. And we said, no, we can't wait that long. They need it fixed, and it was fixed there and then. And this is the value of having a crossbench. If you just have the... The two major parties with the Greens sitting in the middle, um, you can kiss goodbye to any of those uh, kind of activities. Senator, let me ask you about the relationship between those Christian-based parties and Family First, uh, because are there preference uh, uh, deals that are, are being done between these conservative parties uh, to ensure that each other has uh, maximum opportunity to be elected uh, in the Senate and, of course, in the House of Representatives? Is there good relationship between all these parties? Like we've got the uh, you've got the Democratic Labor Party, you've got the uh, the Christian Democratic Party, you've got Australian Christians, you've got the Rise Up Australia Party, you've got Family First there, and uh, and there's also other parties that are aligned in some way or have these conservative foundations. Is there a good relationship and is there a preferencing system that will be in place that will ensure the best outcomes on each side? Look, we, all, we all get on uh, very, very well. We all talk to each other. But obviously, each particular party has, is stronger in some states than others and has more chance. Um, invariably, we all preference each other before we go to the major parties, of course. But then in, in some states, um, it might be advantageous for um, uh, one particular minor party or micro party to come to arrangement with another um, uh, minor party it, it, it might be the, the cyclist party or, or something like that but each party needs to maximise its chances of getting elected and it, it, you know whether Family First is elected in South Australia and uh, the DLP is elected in Victoria and Fred Niles uh, CDP, Christian Democratic Party would be elected in New South Wales um, you know, that's for each party then to um, uh, get the very, very best uh, preference arrangement that it can get. What, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is that preference arrangements and preference deals are, are not a pecking order of like-mindedness. And what I mean by that is when you look at a, a preference arrangement from a, a Christian party, you, to look down the list and think, well, why are you preferencing the cyclist party ahead of Rise Up Australia? It's got, it's got nothing to do with, well, they're more like-minded than us. What it is is to ensure the maximum or the optimum uh, chances of that particular party being elected. And we all understand that. Me often many of our supporters don't. They think you should, be, you should um, have a preference arrangement in, in degrees of like-mindedness. Uh, between all the minor parties, but that's that's not how how politics works. Well, Senator Bob Day, we've run out of time. Appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today and uh, update us on these issues and uh, to inform us about the way Family First is proceeding through the election campaign. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for being uh, part of 2020. My pleasure. Thank you.
Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.